You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. The winner-take-all electoral college system used in almost all states is going to be on trial in federal courts across the country. Civil rights activists are challenging the legality of the winner-take-all method of allocating U.S. presidential electoral college votes in California, Massachusetts, South Carolina, and Texas, claiming the practice violates the constitutional right to an equal vote. Joining me is election law expert Josh Douglas, a professor at the University of Kentucky Law School. The winner-take-all system describes itself, basically, the candidate who wins the most popular votes in the state gets all the electors. Josh, why do the challengers say the system is unconstitutional? Well, thanks, June. I think they're saying that the system violates the principle of one person, one vote, that ideal that everyone's vote is worth the same. And their argument is that if you're allocating multiple electoral college votes in a state based on winner-take-all, then anyone who voted for the losing candidate has their vote worth nothing, and everyone who voted for the winning candidate gets all of the spoils, all of the electoral college votes in that state. On its face, it would seem fairer to allocate the electors. Why do 48 states use this winner-take-all system? Well, the Constitution leaves it up to the states to decide how to allocate their electoral college votes. Um, And, you know, historically at the founding, some states even just had the legislature itself decide uh, how to allocate or who to to award its electoral college votes to. So it's really historical practice that uh, has been occurring for, uh, in most places, uh, since the beginning of our country and the beginning of the use of the electoral college, that states have done this. As you noted, uh, 48 uh, states do so, two states uh, actually allocate by district. Um, So it's just a long historical practice. The lawsuits were filed in two states seen as solidly blue and two seen as solidly red. Why that choice of defendants? Well, the the challengers are certainly trying to make the argument that this is not a partisan push. Uh, They're not trying to favor one side or the other by selecting two uh, predominantly red states, two predominantly blue states, or, you know, states that the Democrats have typically won or the Republican nominee has typically won. What they're trying to show is that anyone who lives in a state where the one candidate or one party's candidate always wins systematically has their votes diluted or their value of their vote not worth anything. 
And by doing it on both sides, I think they're trying to uh, make a push that this is a problem that affects the system as a whole, not just one political party. There's a possibility the courts will rule in different ways, and whatever the outcome, it will surely go to the Supreme Court. Is there any way this issue will be decided by the 2020 presidential elections? I think it's possible if um, the courts act quickly. I mean, it's got to go through the entire court system, but that's ultimately the challenger's goal here is to get this issue before the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I I do think it's possible that um, the challenges could lose in all four of the states, in which case the Supreme Court would not necessarily take it up. But they're hoping to get at least a win in one of them to create a split among the courts and, and increase the likelihood that the Supreme Court would take the issue. So you see this as an uphill battle. I do think it's somewhat of an uphill battle. Um, In part, there's a case from, I believe it's 1969, where the Supreme Court summarily affirmed a lower lower court, a three-judge panel um, uh, district court that had rejected a similar challenge out of Virginia. And so although the Supreme Court didn't speak directly on the issue, there's at least some precedent that they summarily affirmed a decision that rejected a similar challenge. So they've got at least that hurdle to get over. Maine and Nebraska are the only only states that don't follow this system. What system do they use, and is it better? So they allocate uh, a electoral college vote for each congressional district, and then two electoral college votes go statewide for the statewide winner. And that tracks uh, the number of electors that each state receives. Each state receives the number of electors equal to the member numbers of Congress they have, uh, and then adding two for uh, the members of the Senate. Um, and so Maine and Nebraska split it up that way. Whether it's better or not is really a question of political philosophy. Um, it certainly does not raise the same kind of one-person, one-vote concerns that the challengers here are raising. Um, but they, I think their ultimate goal is, is trying to... Uh, change the, the system so that people's value of their votes seems to make more of a difference. Will there be some a lot more attention to this uh, because of the star power involved? The lawyer leading the litigation is David Boyce, who is one of the best-known lawyers in the country and also represented Al Gore when he won the popular vote. Yeah, and, and the other person really behind this is uh, Professor Larry Lessig um, from Harvard. Um, I certainly think one of the main goals, or I don't know main, but one of the goals of uh, the litigation is to increase attention to the issue. You know, I think that there are often uh, a lot of people who are pushing for this national popular vote plan for states to adopt a system where the national popular vote winner would win the presidency. And they say that that is even a, a better system. At least Lessig in, in a blog post has said that. Um, and this is a next best uh, route, the litigation route he's taking. But I think the ultimate goal here is also to increase uh, public understanding. And so perhaps other legislatures would go ahead and move towards the national popular vote system. About 45 seconds here. For the national popular vote system, would that face a change? Would you have to have a change in the Constitution to do that? The current plan is to get states to pass a law that says, regardless of who wins our state, we'll award our electoral college votes to the national popular vote winner. And so it's kind of a workaround of the electoral college. Now, there's some constitutional concerns about that as well, but right now the the plan is to go state by state, and about 11 states have already passed that. 
We'll see what happens here. It, it comes up every time there, the four times that there has been a president elected who was not the winner of the popular vote. Thanks, Josh. That's Josh Douglas, professor at the University of Kentucky Law School. Special counsel Robert Mueller has filed new charges in the case against ex-Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort and his former deputy Rick Gates, but they are under seal. The one-page document doesn't specify the nature of the charges or whether it expanded the case against both men or added others. They were indicted in October for money laundering and failing to register for political consulting work performed in Ukraine. Joining me is Brad Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. Brad, there has been a lot of activity in the special counsel's office lately, and yet no leaks. How unusual is that cone of silence? Well, it's been pretty impressive what uh, Mr. Mueller's office has pulled off here. We have been routinely and repeatedly shocked by what's come out and the fact that we knew so little about what was going to emerge from his office. We know when almost no one saw the, thir- the indictments of the 13 Russian nationals coming a week ago. That came out of pretty much nowhere. And it's come on again and again where everybody's been speculating what's going to happen. But once we finally get some action, it's pretty much not what anybody else had known was going to occur. This is pretty impressive on the part of the special counsel's office. So speaking of speculation, is this likely a superseding indictment replacing the previous indictment? Or Mueller's office has hinted at possible new charges in a separate filing last week. What is this likely to be? Your best guess. yeah, it's likely, I think you're right, it's likely to have been a superseding indictment, adding on additional charges, almost all certainly tax or uh, money laundering type of charges uh, that we were all, that we were hearing about, that there was a lot of media reporting about, that maybe Mr. Mueller's office just wasn't ready to bring when he filed the original adult, uh, indictment several months ago, for which they've now collected sufficient evidence to have brought it to the grand jury and sought to see a superseding indictment. And the obvious purpose of doing it uh, particularly with respect to Mr. Manafort, is to pressure him into making a plea agreement, into becoming a cooperating witness, to find what else he knows about what occurred in the Trump campaign. If anything, that would be relevant to Mr. Mueller's overarching mission, which is to investigate Russian interference in the election. He certainly has put a lot of pressure on him with, with the bail conditions, and it, it doesn't seem to be working what would it take with the amount of money that Manafort has to hire lawyers, uh, great lawyers, and to fight these charges? It would take a, a lot, wouldn't it, to get him to plead? Well, the $64,000 question is, how much money does Manafort truly have at this point? His loans are now all under scrutiny. Some of the charges, if we understand the reporting correctly, has to do with some of those most recent loans, a $16 million loan that he got during the course of the campaign. Uh, so how much money he truly has at this point, how much he can truly afford to put towards lawyers while still maintaining uh, his standard of living remains an open question. And I think that's going to be, especially if Rick Gates pleads guilty possibly tomorrow, which is the assumption and speculation right now, and starts cooperating in a case against Mr. Manafort, the question then is just becomes what kind of deal can Mr. Manafort make to save himself to get the reduced charges as much as he can and avoid spending the rest of his life in prison as part of a cooperating witness with the special counsel. It's hard to know about Manafort's wealth because everything that he's filed about it 
is under seal. If you look at the docket for his case, it's under seal, under seal, under seal. You almost can't get any documents there. Um, And the the, the judge had made a complaint about that last week, but yet still more sealed filings. Why would this particular one be under seal? I mean, why would would Mueller not come out with it and say we're, we're doing a superseding indictment on him? And it, it could be tied to behind-the-scenes negotiations. We don't. We just don't know what the the strategy was here. Uh, but yeah, no, but yeah, I noticed what the what the judge had said, and I was surprised by that as well. The number of sealed filings here are rather odd. Uh, the fact that the judge has not moved against them at this point is also somewhat surprising. But at the same time, without knowing what's contained within those filings, without knowing the details of the justification that we're all kind of spinning our wheels here and speculating as to what it could be. There may be some legitimate reasons for this information to remain under seal. Now, you mentioned Rick Gates, and lawyers for Rick Gates are going to meet with the trial judge tomorrow. And the the request that's on the table is to have his attorneys withdraw from the case. What the speculation is from several sources is that he is going to to plead. I think the Los Angeles Times was the first to to come out with that. The, The attorney said in a February 1st submission, irreconcilable differences have developed with the client, which make our effective representation of the client impossible. Could pleading be an irreconcilable difference, or is this something that has nothing to do with a possible plea? It could be one or the other. It could be part of the plea, but my assumption is it has more to do with the issue of funding and his ability to handle the bills and pers- and continue forward in a financial arrangement that the firm can view as acceptable. But even if it wasn't purely about money, the idea that he's going to move forward with a plea deal, that might be against the advice, the very strict advice of his lawyers. And, they, and every lawyer has a clause in their retainer agreement that they have the right to withdraw if the client refuses to heed their guidance and advice. That's understandable in the sense of if you don't want to listen to my guidance, then we can terminate this you know, business arrangement and you can secure other counsel who will agree with you. But my view, my role here is only to try to assist you and guide you. I am not bound to you beyond the strict terms of the retainer agreement. So it could just be the idea that they don't agree with his plea deal, which might ultimately be due to financial considerations more than anything else. It's it's a, it's a puzzle behind a mystery, behind a curtain, <laughs> and I don't know how long it will take us to, to figure it all out. But thanks, as always, for your help doing that, Brad. That's Brad Moss. He's a partner at Mark Zaid. A- another thing happening today is former Donald Trump political advisor Sam Nunberg will be interviewed by the special counsel, Robert Mueller, investigating the Russian meddling uh, today, according to a person familiar with the matter. And uh, he has been told he is not a target of the investigation and there will be no charges against him, provided he does not lie. Coming up on Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power and Law, civil rights activists are pushing back against states who use a winner-take-all electoral college system. Four states are being sued, but 48 states use it. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.